hello and welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. My name is Claire and I am back. back. I'm back. Yeah. I'm back from um, a big trip to East Africa and I had a wonderful time. Thanks for asking. Fantastic. Have you brought science back with you? <laughs> um, yeah, I will continue to bring science um, back from the continent that we all came from. Right. Excellent. Africa. Fantastic. But today I don't have science from Africa. I I, I, I have something a little bit different for you today, huh. Chris. Um, I'm actually talking to a whale paleontologist. Oh, a whaleontologist? <laughs> a whaleontologist. <laughs> the obvious yes, thing. The obvious pun here. Um, Dr. Felix Marx. So, so when you think of the North Pole and you think of the South Pole and you think of the North Pole and you think polar bears, you think of the South Pole, you think about penguins, yeah. uh, never the twain shall meet. Um, well, this whale paleontologist, uh, Dr. Felix Marx, um, he actually studies um, whales that live exclusively within the Southern Hemisphere. But some new research has found that um, they actually also exist in the Northern Hemisphere or have in the past fossils, fossilised remains have been found in the Northern Hemisphere. So we're going to talk a little bit about how, um, like what what the whale fossil record is and why it's so important. Excellent. Chris, what do you have for us today? Well, I, I, I'm going to see your whale fossils and I'm going to raise you dinosaur fossils. Oh, look, let's not one-up one another on fossils, but go on. We're having on. a fossil arms race here. <laughs> fossil off. Obviously, the T-Rex would lose. Yeah, well, I mean, whale race. fossils don't really have arms to speak of no, either. That's true. But, but Well, um, th this is not a, a, a T-Rex. This is a, a, um, a dinosaur that recently has been work published about looking at the coloration of this particular dinosaur, um, a dinosaur that had kind of ginger stripes on it. And we're going to look at how we know, how can we possibly, how know, can we possibly know what colour a dinosaur was oh my goodness. and why it would have had such coloration in the first place. Fascinating. Yeah. It'll certainly Ginger make, stripes. Yep. Certainly make the next Jurassic World Park sequel more interesting. They've decided sure. they're going to ignore developments in paleontology. They're going to ignore science. They're going to ignore yeah. science. Yeah. They locked it in back in the early 90s. They're they, not changing. They, so don't put, make it up. they don't even put feathers on their yeah, dinosaurs. Yeah. No, they did make up something about that. That's because they're cloned from frogs or something yeah, like something that. Anyway. <laughs> <Some rubbish. laughs> they made something up. On with the show.
So, can I ask you, what colour are dinosaurs? Green. Brown. Greeny brown. Browny yellow. So you're saying if you was like a colouring <laughs> a colouring book and you had to colour in a dinosaur, you'd reach for like the the greeny brown. I'm pencils. pretty sure. Pretty sure if I was doing any of the colouring book, I would have used all the colours and made the dinosaurs all different colours. So well, that that's would... true. This is what we I think we were encouraged to do. I remember I just remember I had a colouring book when I was a kid that basically said something on the lines of no one can ever know what colour dinosaurs were, so just go crazy, kids, and you had all the Use different... your imagination, Chris. Yeah. All different kind of matching colours and spots and stripes and yeah. that yeah. sort of thing. You just yeah. went mad. Yeah. yeah, yeah, why not? Yeah. Well, they weren't really camouflage. You had like garish colours. And... Yeah, yeah. Well, but the plants might have been garish colours around them as well. You yeah. never know. But look, this is this is when we were kids and things have changed now, guys. You know, we know a lot more. You know, things have changed with dinosaurs. Even though they've been extinct for 65 million years, dinosaurs have changed. I mean, they no longer, we don't no longer think of them as slow, lumbering creatures. We, um, we know their tails didn't drag on the ground, like in all the, in all the old picture books. Um, and we know that some of them had feathers. Yes. Yes. And Even this, though Jurassic Park tells us otherwise. Jurassic Park is not a documentary, Claire. Stop thinking that these movies are documentaries. I don't right. think anything Michael Crichton's ever written is accurate scientifically, so we'll just exclude <laughs> that idea from people's minds. Very wise. Um, but yes, uh, they do. They did have feathers, and it is thanks to these feathers, mostly, that we now know about dinosaur colours. Okay, so feathers. Um, obviously, birds have feathers. Uh, you're probably familiar with birds. Uh, feathers are made out of keratin, which is like... Um, it's you what know, your our nails hair are made and your of. nails and yeah. those kind of things. Yeah. And keratin kind of kind of um, decomposes when when it's you, a protein. You yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, it decomposes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when it does, it can leave behind things called melanosomes. A what? Sorry. Melanosomes. Melanosomes. What could be melanosomes? Okay. Melanosomes. Anyway, they're basically little <laughs> organelles from inside the cells that carry the pigment melanin. Ah, uh, okay. Okay, so you can get these little, these little pigmenty um, melanosomes left behind. Now, the thing about melanin, though, is that uh, melanin, of course, we kind of think of it as kind of the brownish pigment, brownish or blackish kind of things, give uh-huh. things a dark colour. But it does come in different kinds. It can be um, the, the blackish and brownish ones. It can also be red or yellowy kind of melanins as well. Um, and the, the shape of a melanosome is determined by the type of melanin that produces. So when you find these little melanosomes left behind in your fossils, you can look at them under a microscope and you can see what shape they are and you go, I know what kind of pigment was in that melanosome. From the shape. From the shape. Because protein's function is always dictated by their shape. So that would, yeah, each different colour would have to be a different shape. That's most likely it, Stu, yes. Now, so this is possible to figure out yeah, a clear bit about the colour of a dinosaur if you find these melanosomes. And people have done this. Um, this is a very happy story, isn't it? Now, the most recent um, <laughs> study, published study was from research from the University of Bristol. They examined a small meat-eating dinosaur called Cynosauropteryx, which was found in China. Yep. As a lot of these feathered Cretaceous era uh, dinosaurs have been. Now, the, um, the fossil of Cynosauropteryx, it has some... Uh, distinct dark markings around the fossil corresponding to feathers left behind melanosomes. And these, you know, these melanosomes matched uh, mostly the, the kind of the reddish kind, kind of melanosomes. So basically had a gingery colour, a reddy gingery colour. Maybe rusty brown, maybe russet. Is it russet or red, reddish brown? Yeah, russet is sort yeah, of reddish brown. Yeah. Um, so it had this kind of reddish brown russet colour, if you will, on its back. But then also some stripes around the tail. 
And, really? Um, and even like a big stripe, a bandit mask type stripe across the Whoa, eyes. Whoa, a bandit mask. A so bandit it was, it was, mask. It was a bandit dinosaur. It was, <laughs> it was the raccoon of the dinosaur It was kingdom. kind of a raccoon It was even better than a raccoon because it was like red as well. So it went heaps faster. Exactly. Well, it probably did because, you know, on two legs. Yeah. That kind of stuff. Now, there was no, no colouring underneath, which suggests that maybe it had a belly of white feathers. Because remember, mm. the, um, the feathers without the pigmentation don't leave behind any trace. So it's quite possible. Sounds like, sounds like the Angry Bird. Colouring. It does a little bit sound like the Angry Bird, doesn't it? Yeah. Because um, <laughs> it was kind of a, a bird, yeah. It's probably an Angry Bird. Yeah. Well, that kind of answers all the question then. Now, but, now the question then is, what, did, what does this coloration mean? What can we de- de- um, deduce? What can we infer from, from the, um, the colouring? Well, what um, other animals are ginger? I mean, I'm just trying to think. I can think of like the red panda is ginger, but sort of. Yeah. There's a lot of birds that have that sort of coloration. That Parrots. sort of... Yeah, parrots. Well, it could, it could be sparrowy type. It was thing. kind of a reddish brown color, so maybe that the the dirt where it lived was kind of reddish brown. So they're trying to figure out like what it might have been used for. Now, camouflage is the obvious thing to think about. Like the um the the bandit mask is often used for for camouflage um, to hide the eyes from like predators or prey. Um, like birds, some birds have a bandit mask kind of thing. Um, it can also though cut down on glare from bright light or from mm. water. Now, um, oh. and the, the white belly apparently is works best as kind of a camouflage if you're in a brightly lit or open area because it's sort of a counter shading because normally you'd be shadowed underneath. So if you have a lighter colouring underneath, then that kind of removes some of the shading from the, the light. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, yeah, cam- all camouflage is to break up the shape of the silhouette. Really, yeah. it's not going to hide you completely most of the time. Yeah. It's just to sort of yeah. Make stri- you look less like you. The stripy tail is a bit, a bit more of a puzzle because you know that kind of seemed to work better in vegetation, perhaps. Or you know, you often see like stripy tails say on lemurs. Um, they have the big. Some of those lemurs have the big stripy tail, which is kind of more for display. And being for display is kind of the opposite of camouflage. So that's not entirely clear, I guess. So we don't know. I mean, we, well, we don't know exactly. Just to talk about uh, African African animals for go a second for it, here. Go go there. Uh, zebras, obviously, very stripy, and they when you see them in the flesh, they don't camouflage very well. There was However, a lot of debate about the purpose of zebra stripes. Well, I was under the impression that um, that the eyes of the lion were they were actually camouflaged. If you look through the eyes of the lion, you couldn't really see it. It, it, it sort of breaks it up. Like yeah, I, I think I think there's been yeah some, some confusing kind of stuff around that. Um, I read a paper a few years ago where they looked at the um the the distribution of of um, zebra color styles, and they found them more associated with temperature. And this idea that maybe the the striping is a case of circulation of air, oh, also really? possibly protects them against some um, sissy flies. Ah. so also, it's not it also quite could clear. Probably just be because zebras are a herding animal. It's not to disguise an individual zebra standing by itself. It's to disguise that there's actual individual zebras in a group of zebras. Yeah. And it might just make confuse the lions when they're all together because it can't see where one zebra ends, ends and the next that, one begins. Yeah. yeah or it could be so you can tell point. them apart if you've got a laser barcode reader. I don't know. The jury is out. <laughs> Um, but the thing is that, okay, so this is, but with the dinosaur though, this is a bit of speculation. Not everyone agrees with this analysis. So for instance, um, you know, the idea of there not being any feathers underneath, that may actually be because, you know, something happened when it died. I mean, it may have been that the feathers were removed somehow, like, you know, by decomposition. Um, and similarly, 
uh, some microbes, some bacteria have can look very similar to melanosomes under a microscope. So some people said, oh, maybe they're actually bacteria, even though the stripes are pretty distinct on the on the tail. So you go, mm, doesn't look like bacteria would be doing that. But you know, there is some dispute about this. We can't be entirely sure because it did happen a long time ago. Um, but the other interesting limitation of all this research too is that, as I said, we can see the melanin uh, colors left behind from the feathers. But if you look at birds today, they have you know, a wide variety of colors. It's not just browns and reds and blacks and grays and that kind of stuff. So, you know, there could be other pigments that we can't see yet or that we can't have, don't have any um, fossilized trace of. So they might still have had, you know, brighter colors to use more of your, your coloring in pencils and that sort of thing. So we can't entirely be sure of that, but hopefully we'll figure that out soon. But um, I guess, look, the, the moral of the story is you can put away your, your green pencil stew when you're coloring in the dinosaurs. Uh, maybe you can keep the, the brown one, Claire. I think you said the brown pencil, but um, yeah. Look, don't be afraid to add a few stripes when you're coloring it in, though, as well, because that's that's kind of more accurate and true to life. Science, the final frontier. These are the voyages of Lost in Science, our ongoing mission to explain strange new words to seek out new science and new explanations, to boldly go where no radio has gone before. along the east coast of Australia, then chances are you've probably seen whales migrating up and down the east coast. We love the whales of our southern ocean, but how much do you know about these gentle giants and how they have evolved? Well, our guest today is going to help us rectify that. Dr. Felix Marx is a research associate at Museums Victoria and Monash University, an expert in whale paleontology. Felix, welcome to Lost in Science. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Now, I'm going to start with the hard-hitting questions. Look, we have a lot of favourite whales in Australia, humpbacks, southern right whales, blue whales. I know my nephew's favourite whale is a sperm whale. What is your favourite whale? So it's actually one that you haven't mentioned, and it's a bit of an obscure one called the pygmy right whale. Yes. I imagine that's quite small. It depends on what you what you call small. For a whale, it is. It is <laughs> the smallest of the living whales, in fact. So it grows to about six, six and a half meters if it's really big, which, you know, for a human is still huge, but for a whale is small. And why is it your favorite? Because it's also the most obscure in terms of its evolutionary story, if you like, and in terms of its life habits. So it's for once, it's a whale that only lives in the Southern Ocean, actually. So it's a very Australian thing, if you like. It's a very Australian whale. It is. I mean, it, it's, it lives in Australian waters, New Zealand, and sort of closest to uh, Argentina and South Africa, but really not in the north at all. So it's, it's one of the few whales that really is quite restricted. So that is unusual for whales. It is, because they're large, they can migrate, so usually they're quite widely distributed, but this one isn't. It's, as I said, it's the smallest of the living ones. And no matter what you look at, it's somehow strange. So, for example, it's the only whale that can see color. It's, its skeleton, if you, if you look at it on the inside, is, it really looks a bit like a tank. Like its ribs are really broad and sort of overlap each other. And it's, wow. it's like an 
a wall forming its chest, and no one quite knows why. Um, the the little power um, plants in each cell called mitochondria, like in the pygmy right whale, they are somehow strange, different from other whales, and we don't really? quite know why. So it's a really bizarre, very interesting little critter. So you'd say this is your favorite personally and from an evolutionary perspective? Uh, yes, I suppose. I'm not sure you should have a <laughs> professional favorite, but yeah, if you like. Is it quite related to the right whale? No, not at all. Okay. Um, so historically, people did think that, and you can see why, because superficially it looks a bit similar, and that's probably to do with the fact that they feed in a very similar way. So all, all whales, baleen whales, they filter feed, and the pygmy right whale and right whales happen to filter feed in a very particular way where they just swim into clouds of little prey, if you like. And so that caused them to look a little bit similar. But once you look below the surface and you look a bit deeper into their DNA, for example, into the details of their body shape and things like what I just said, their the, the vision, etc., you find a lot of differences. You've actually just put out some new research around the pygmy right whale. Is that correct? That's right, yes. And um, can you tell us a little bit about that research? So as I said, the pygmy right whale only lives in the southern hemisphere, in the, in the southern ocean pretty much. And we, we know very little about its evolution and there are very few fossils that we can identify definitely as related to the pygmy right whale. Those that we do know about so far have always come from the southern hemisphere as well. So, so somewhere in Australia or? There's around? one from Australia, from Melbourne actually, from Bermores. Um, there's one from Argentina and there's one from Peru. Wow, only three? Pretty much. Wow. Um, so, so far, I mean, everything sort of had fitted together in the sense that, you know, we've got the southern species, we've got the southern fossils, all good. And now we just published this paper in which we report two new fossils, and unexpectedly one of them came from Japan and wow. one of them from Sicily. And that's sort of strange enough, but the other weird thing about it is that they both are relatively young, again, in geological terms. So one of them is about... 1.8 million years old, which if you think that the Earth is like 4.6 billion years old is nothing. <laughs> yeah. And the other one is maybe 900,000 years or thereabouts in that, in that ballpark, maybe a bit younger than that. And we think that the, the fact that they occur in the North during that relatively recent time had to do with the Ice Ages. Had to do with the Ice Ages how? In terms of how the pygmy right whale is moving or yes yeah so during warmer periods like we have now um and uh, what we had like three million years ago and prior to that um in the tropics you've got a lot of sun obviously that sun warms the water and so you've got this band of warm water surrounding pretty much the equator and warm water i mean it sounds balmy and nice but really in terms of food for marine life it's not that great and the reason for that is that when you have a warm water layer on top of the water it means that the deeper water which is cold can't come to the surface very easily and the deep water has all of the nutrients so without those nutrients life doesn't grow very well no food whales have a bit of a hard time when it's colder the waters around the equator cool so the deeper nutrient rich waters can come to the surface and all of a sudden it's a little bit easier to find food it's a little bit easier to cross it's a little bit easier to extend your range and so we think that during the ice ages which started about two and a half million years ago that it just became easier for several whales and dolphins to cross the equator and expand into the north south respectively in your opinion, would this have um, implications for other species that are only found at certain poles, like, you know, 
polar bears and penguins and those sorts of things as well? Yeah. So, I mean, we, we know that other whales and dolphins were affected by this and seals as well. There are some species today where there is, um, or species pairs, I should say, where we've got a northern variety and a southern one, like a northern elephant seal and a southern elephant seal. They split quite recently, a bit like the pygmy right whale. So they probably underwent a similar process. But in their case, both the northern and the southern population, if you like, survived once the equator became warm again. In the case of the pygmy right whale, the northern population didn't and went extinct. So in a way... What was really surprising about the pygmy right whale is that it's such a localized southern specialist, if you like, that finding it in the north was really strange. And that is a little bit like finding a kangaroo in Scotland or finding a polar bear in the, in the Antarctic. And I mean, these are extreme examples, but the pygmy right whale is extreme. So at some point, could it be that we find a southern walrus? Sure. Why not? That will definitely be an exciting time. There is, if you, if you allow me to say that there's one more reason maybe why we haven't found that much about like southern walruses and, and northern penguins and that sort of thing so far and there's something very counterintuitive about this so one or two million years ago in geological terms is quite recent and so you would think that it's a time that we know a lot about and that's true for for things that go on, on land so we know about mammoths and saber-toothed cats and all of this but in the ocean it's different because while the ice ages lasted while there was a lot of ice locked up at the poles the sea level was very low because all of that water that formed the ice had to be coming from somewhere and it came from the ocean. So sea levels were more than 100 meters lower than they are today. That also means that whatever animals died got washed ashore, were deposited in sediment at the time. Now that sea level is 100 meters up again, they're all 100 meters below the surface. And so even though it's so recent, as far as the marine life is concerned, we don't actually know that much about that time. And so a lot of surprises may well be in store. So does that mean the fossils that you find are often 100 metres underwater? Uh, well, we don't find that very often because it's so difficult to access. <laughs> I was going we to sometimes say. we sometimes do. So there are there are certain places um, uh, where you can go and you can trawl. Like you trawl for fish, you can also trawl for fossils. I mean, often that's just accidental that someone is actually trawling for a fish and finds a fossil in the process. And they can be of various ages. Sometimes they are uh, from the last million years or so. Sometimes they're also much older. If you have older rocks that are just exposed on the on the seafloor and they break up as you trawl over them. But I mean, these are chance finds. So mostly what we you have find to be is, very lucky, I imagine. Yeah. So mostly what we find are things that are just about exposed on land. And you can get that, for example, because of uplift when you have mountains building, mountains rise, um, and eventually some of the seafloor sediments will rise with them above the surface and you find stuff there. You're listening to Lost in Science on the Community Radio Network, and I'm speaking to Dr. Felix Marks, whale paleontologist. Now, Felix, your team's also been looking at baleen whales and how their baleen has evolved over time. Mm -hmm. They used to actually be fearsome predators. Is that is that right? That's true. Um, all whales, the ancestors of all whales and dolphins, used to be quite fearsome predators. So the earliest that we find have quite nasty-looking teeth. And that's also true for, for baleen whales. And in fact, some of the best evidence for that comes from Australia, from the surf coast here in, in Victoria. Um, really? And it's a whale called Janjacetus after Janjak Beach. Janjacetus? Janjacetus, Represent yes. Janjak. Indeed. <laughs> and it's it's little for a whale. Um, I don't know, maybe... But fearsome, surely. Fearsome, little and nasty. So uh, <laughs> two or three meters long, but big teeth, very powerful jaws, probably quite powerful jaw muscles as well. Would have had quite a bite. Um, and presumably was just, from all we can tell, quite a fearsome predator, actually. 
Um, and how long ago would would that whale have? So we're talking we're talking about more or less twenty five million years, give or take a million years. Okay. So in that time, they've become um, their uh, reputation has become a little bit more gentle. The gentle giants of the yeah, sea now. They've become more gentle and more gigantic for sure. I mean, judging by the last couple of um, discoveries that that you've had, is whale paleontology always this exciting? Well, I think it's exciting in the sense that whales are some of the strangest mammals that exist really. They're really opposed to child of evolution. Because if you think about a mammal, you think about a, a, a land-living creature that breathes air, that suckles its young, that gives birth to live young, all of that. And these are all really challenging things to deal with when you go back to the water. So whales, more than most other animals, really had to adapt in, in very bizarre ways sometimes to try and cope with the new environment. And whales, for me in particular, are a really good example of that because in a way they, they went the furthest. They're the biggest. They, they have completely lost teeth, which is something that mammals, is really characteristic of mammals, but whales haven't got that anymore. They filter feed on this tiny prey, which is something no other mammal can do. So they're, they're really bizarre, weird, interesting creatures. And so in that sense, for me, it is always that exciting because you always learn something new. Felix, thank you so much for joining us on Lost in Science today. And um, next time I see a whale, I'm going to think about it a lot differently. Thank you very much. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook. Uh, And if that's not enough Lost in Science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost in science.